Welcome back to season two of Archiverted, a podcast about the art world, dedicated to showcasing leaders and changemakers in the arts, from artists to museum directors and everyone in between. We discuss their experiences, the communities they serve, and why they've dedicated their lives to art. We at Archiverted believe that the future of the art world is female, and that's why we've dedicated this season exclusively to women in the arts. In this episode, we speak with Alicia Eggert, an internationally recognized artist whose large-scale neon and inflatable installations inspire viewers to contemplate existential and philosophical questions through text and time. Her fascinating work draws from astrophysics, existential philosophy, and semiotics, yet is accessible to viewers of all experiences. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hi, Alicia. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I'm so happy to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're a prolific, internationally recognized artist, a university professor, and mother, uh, and your work has been shown and collected worldwide. I'm so excited to talk to you about that and more. But before we dive in, I'd like to just start by asking how you got into the arts. Well, um, I don't come from an artistic family per se. Um, at least my parents both say they're not very creative, although I do think they both are in their own ways. But I was always creative as a child in terms of um, like storytelling, I think was my biggest creative outlet. I used to love sitting at my mom's typewriter when she actually had one of those and writing stories and also creating like treasure maps and going on those kinds of adventures. But I think that's pretty common for kids to do those things. But I wasn't the kind of kid that like drew or painted a lot, especially like images from my imagination um, necessarily. The one class I got really into in high school was photography. Um, So I did black and white photography. And for a little while, I thought I was going to be a photo major in college. Um, But then I ended up having like imposter syndrome and realizing... I wasn't. Welcome to art, right? That's when you knew you were going to be an artist right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like a never ending case of imposter syndrome. But yeah, I started feeling like, well, maybe I'm not a photographer because I don't carry a camera around with me everywhere (laughs) the way that other people do. So I ended up going in the direction of interior design and architecture in college um, because I realized I really did love like three dimensional space and uh, space planning. And that was the kind of interior design designer interior architecture that I learned. But then it was my very last semester of college. I took a sculpture class and uh, the professor of that class, his name was Ephraim Russell, introduced uh, us to conceptual art in a way that finally clicked with me. And I really realized in that class, like, oh, like you can make art not based on like an image from your head, but based on an idea that you want to communicate. And I realized like, that's what I wanted to do. Um, But it was my very last semester of college. And I kind of cried to him being like, I think I just went to school for the wrong thing. And he's like, it's okay, go get a job, (laughs) get your (laughs) degree, get a job. And if that feeling doesn't go away, you can always go to grad school. Um, So that's kind of what I did. I practiced interior design at an architectural firm in New York for several years after college and started taking classes at community art places in New York City, uh, like learning how to weld and learning some things about electronics and then just kind of making art after work um, until I realized like, okay, I need to go to grad school. So 
here I am. <laughs> and then you ended up going to Alfred, right? Which Yes. Yeah. I went to Alfred University for sculpture. And um, Alfred is really known as a craft-based school. They're the number one school in the country uh, for ceramics. Um, oh, I didn't know that. I thought glass yeah. was kind of their primary Well, they're also really well known for glass. So ceramics is its own program and glass falls under the umbrella of sculpture. So as a a sculpture grad, I TA'd for glass classes and learned a little bit about glass, only really kind of dabbled. And then, um, but the nice thing about going to Alfred for grad school was that I did learn how to do a lot of things in a short period of time. Um, And so, you know, learned how to weld and do some more woodworking, like really basic sculpture processes. Um, So that was great to get to to get exposed to so many things that I obviously didn't get to learn in undergrad. And that that whole way of thinking, you know, uh, transforming your life, having an actual job as an interior designer to something more conceptual, turning into an artist and then but actually having a degree, you know, I mean, really committed to that and committed financially as well, as well as, uh, you know, intellectually. Um, I've read that uh, your family, you kind of come from a unique background in that your your family was really religious. They were um, like Pentecostal ministers, maybe, mm-hmm. or missionaries. And yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that and then how that informed your experience of then going to, you know, choose the path of, of an artist and, and, and ultimately your work a little bit. Sure. Um, So yeah, my father was a Pentecostal minister for pretty much my entire life. And when I was very young, um, he pastored a church in New Jersey. And then when I was about five years old, he and my mother became missionaries to South Africa. And we moved there as a family in 1986. And they took on a like four-year missionary term. So we were there from 1986 till the end of 1990, which was the very end of the apartheid. And we lived uh, in a suburb outside of Cape Town and they started a a multiracial church in downtown Cape Town Um, that actually still exists to this day. But yeah, we lived in like an all white neighborhood. I attended an all white public school um, while they were doing that. So it was a really kind of crazy time. And we were there um, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. So it was a really crazy kind of exciting time. Um, But it's also like I have a lot of mixed and kind of confused feelings about it because, you know, um, as I've gotten older, I've realized like how uh, I'm not religious. I'm an atheist now. So I feel like um, missionary work is often very problematic. (laughs) Even, you know, if people are, you know, really doing their best to try to be helpful and there's like the white savior kind of complex that's mixed into all of that as well. But ultimately I am grateful for like the experiences that I had there as a child, um, both culturally and also in nature um, on like safaris and things like that. And uh, yeah, I think like the religious upbringing has definitely shaped uh, me and my work in a lot of ways. And I think it's ultimately why I think so much about time and almost like um, like big existential questions are sort of what drives me and the work that I do. And I think the reason for that is because I spent so much time in church listening to my dad's sermons and wondering about like the purpose of life or the meaning of life and what's going to happen after we die and all those um, kinds of questions. So yeah, it's an interesting kind of backstory, but 
uh, my dad often says now that like he wishes I was making the kind of work I'm making now when he was still preaching because he would like wow. to use my work as That's so <laughs> like, cool. illustrations for his sermons. <laughs> That's amazing. Have you ever thought yeah. of putting your work in a church? No. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that you know, what drives me is more of this, the science behind right. time um, and the kind of philosophical questions that don't necessarily have clear answers. Um, so it's really funny to me that he thinks that my work kind of illustrates these answers he's found in his religion, you know? So I'm not really familiar with Pentecostal Christianity or what's the... It's evangelical. I think the main sort of difference uh, between... Pentecostal and other denominations is um, the way they believe in speaking in tongues. Um, Yeah. So that's very much like an active part of church services and sort of individual prayer language, I guess Mm -hmm. is the way that I define it, you know? Um, But it was very much a part of like church for me as I was growing up. And the idea is, uh, if you don't know anything about like the Pentecost as it's described in the Bible, um, but it's basically, uh, it's described in the New Testament as when after Jesus rose from the dead and like went back up to heaven, um, all of the disciples were left with the, the role or the job of like going around the world and starting to preach and convert people to Christianity. Um, And often that would require them to go to places and speak to people where they didn't know the language. And so the, the Pentecost was this like coming down of the Holy Spirit, where uh, basically the Holy Spirit allowed them to speak languages they didn't um, naturally know. So they were kind of like overcome with the spirit and they were speaking in gibberish, but then other people in the room would magically understand what they were saying. Um, So that's where it comes from. And it's a very different thing now in church services, but that's like kind of the root of it, I guess. Wow. What a wild environment to grow up in i think in in a foreign country there were no too. snakes yeah there were no snakes okay <laughs> and i and i don't think i've seen any snakes in your work either so i guess yeah, it's, it hasn't fully carried over oh but i think yeah. it's so interesting how your dad is is um because that was something i'd wondered you know what does your family think of you being an artist and and that's so i guess touching that that your father really maybe that even shows how i mean how much it impacts um others but um but especially him how then he reconciles out with his faith and and uses it um mm-hmm. that's yeah really cool yeah i think they're just convinced that deep down somewhere you know i'm still a christian and i just have to remember <laughs> um it's really touching i mean because it's hard for them ultimately i think the hardest thing about coming from having family that is um that religious is that like ultimately they really do believe that i'm going to go to hell if I die. Right. So I imagine that must be like a really horrible thing to think about your child, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think in a way, like my father believing that I'm making work that is ultimately religious is, is sort of a way for him to, yeah, like you said, reconcile or sort of like thwart that belief and have some kind of hope, I guess, you know? Yeah, well, I think your work does give um, a lot of people hope. I love being in the presence of it because 
it, it takes so on so many different media and forms and scale. I don't know. Time has always been a really relative concept for me, even since I was a kid. You know, I'd say the other day, which could be 15 years ago or it could be yesterday. Uh, and and I, that's just the way it's always been for me. I don't know. I don't know how that um, evolved, but I, I know that's something that, you know, your work makes a lot of people question time and their relation to it. And it's been a, a central theme of your work for um, for quite a long time, I think. And, and I'd like to know, how did you I mean, you grew up in in thinking about time. That was something that was that was really present kind of in that religious environment. But then how did you later kind of consider that, uh, you know, more so as as what you wanted to be the what was going to be the primary driver of your work? Mm -hmm. I think I wish I could have a clear answer to that question, because I feel like that's what my students always want to know, <laughs> you know, as an artist who's first starting out, it's like, how do you know what that one sort of core question is that you're going to ask over and over and over again in different ways? You know, um, it's almost like you don't know until you just make the work. And then like the more work you make, the more that question starts to kind of bubble up to the surface. Right. And then you, yeah. you can kind of like look back at all the work you've made and see this kind of common thread running through everything. And then once you identify that, I feel like you can really start to focus and hone in and be more direct. Um, but it does take so much time to kind of discover that core interest. And for me, it happened in graduate school. I, you know, like most artists do, I was kind of making art that was really bouncing around a lot in terms of what it was focusing on or asking questions about. Um, and I was just kind of like coming up with like an idea I thought it would be cool and then I would make it and then I would come up with another idea I thought would be cool and I'd make that and I was kind of really jumping all over the place and so um but then you know the more I did that the more that jumping all over the place started to kind of like circle around <laughs> a smaller and smaller area and I think the big um Game changer for me was this one um, artwork I made in grad school that was the first sign. Um, the first time my work ever actually took the form of a sign. And it was uh, something called a blade sign that is the kind of sign that you screw to the wall and it kind of sticks out from the wall perpendicularly. And um, I ordered it online. It's the kind of sign that you would see like in a hallway um, pointing out where like the restroom is or something. And uh, it's like really small and it's kind of fake wood grain with white lettering, you know, very institutional mm -hmm. looking. And um, I ordered it so that it would say now on one side and then on the other. And it was one of those really kind of simple, silly ideas of like, oh, I want to. Oh, that would be cool. I'll just do that. Um, see what that's like. And so I ordered it and I hung it on the wall out of my outside of my studio. And by just like hanging it up and then like interacting with it over time, I realized that it was like a very simple idea that asked like way bigger questions um, than I was kind of imagining at first it would ask um, because the, the meaning of those words kind of changed as you interacted with them in time and space. And that tiny little sign like really became like a blade that divided time and space and I don't know, it just kind of like was this door. It opened up this giant door of like, ooh, I love language and the way that you can uh, 
you play with language and take advantage of the fact that like one word can have many different meanings um, depending on the context you use it in. And then also with like signage, um, signage being like something that I started getting really interested in because of all of its like all of the different um, materials and methods that you can kind of take advantage of and the way that signs like really quickly and easily kind of communicate an idea, you know, which is what was at the core of what I was interested in. Yeah, I saw that sign along with some of your other work at a, a solo show at a Liliana Block Gallery here in Dallas. That um, and, and I was so glad. I think that may have been the first work that you saw when you walked in. Um, yeah. I can't remember, but um, it was really cool to see um, that and that the story was there and that you know you 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 understood that, but also all the different media you had and uh, in the gallery. I remember one of the pieces. I think it said "Alas," and it was in actual real flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think I don't know at what point in the in the duration of the show I saw it, but I've seen pictures of it and it they they died, right? Or at least um maybe not died, but they they um what it would dried up and um Yeah, they definitely died. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you told you told them not to water it, right? <laughs> yeah, well no, they weren't uh they were cut flowers, so yeah. they weren't they actually weren't even right. in water. Right. Um but yeah the the little now then sign which the title of it is uh between now and then um so I made that in grad school in 2008, but it's something that I like still show almost every time I have a solo exhibition, I love to just like hang it near the entrance. Cause I still feel like it kind of gets at the core of what I'm interested in about time. And it's so simple. It, you is. Know? And it's it like is. That's what I love about your really... work. It's so simple yet so profound. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and it doesn't, you know, it can, it hangs kind of like high up on the wall where you have to like, you know, you might not even notice it when you first walk in or something or maybe ever. Um, so it, it's fun to kind of always include in solo shows whenever I have one. But the Alas is something that I think is one of my more recent works. So it's kind of on the opposite end, right, of the scale of that between now and then sign, um, because I'm really trying to, you know, still working with language and text um, explore as wide of a range of materials as possible in my work um, and especially materials that already have a duration or a sense of time kind of embedded in them. So things like on one side of the scale, you have like cut flowers, which wilt and die, you know, almost immediately and, you know, lose their color and dry out within a couple of weeks to like carved stone, which seems kind of like more permanent, but also would have a certain lifespan if the stone is left outside and kind of um, exposed to the elements. Right. So I'm interested in like that huge range of like duration um, and how that comes naturally to different materials. I, I love neon. I've, I've always loved neon. Uh, I was first really exposed to like artist neon um, by a friend, James Akers, who I know that, that we both know and just how neon people work. I mean, he's like a hardcore uh, neon guy. And I mean, he's electric. Like, I feel like if you touch him, you might get sparked. But um, really is. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's like, it's so funny. I'm like, I feel like you were put on this earth to work with neon. Um, he's he's so yeah. cool. Um, but I actually uh, met James at Alfred. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because I, yeah, yeah. He went there. I remember that. Um, yeah, yeah. And when I was at Alfred, they're one of the few schools in the country that actually has um, a neon studio, and they teach neon to undergrad and grad students in their program. But when I was in grad school, it was just a two-year program, and I kind of immediately recognized that if I really wanted to learn neon, I would have to dedicate myself to the craft, you know, um, because you really have to practice it like for probably thousands of hours until you can actually bend a letter, especially something as complicated as a letter, as opposed to like a squiggly line or something like more like a drawing. Right. So I kind of recognize like, oh man, I want to work with Neon, but I know I'll probably never be able to invest the, the amount of time needed to really master the craft. So instead of taking the class, I just started hiring students that took the class. <laughs> outsource, um, outsource the work, you know, for everything in your life when you can, right? Yeah. 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 And I think, well, I think for me, it Delegate actually comes rather, back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it actually comes back to my experience in the world of architecture and design sure. because it became really natural for me to like always be collaborating with other people. So as the interior designer, I was collaborating with the contractor and the architect who could seal the drawings and the engineers who had to stamp them and, you know, all of the the people involved in those kinds of like really big construction projects, right? Like you, you don't expect an architect to build a building themselves, right? right? But for some reason, we still have this expectation that the artists make everything themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But I think I was really comfortable delegating tasks, like you said, or having the vision and doing the drawings that other people could help me execute, you know? So, um, so I started doing that as early as graduate school, just hiring people who were taking that neon class and really invested in that craft to make some things, to make some letters and words um, for my thesis show. The other thing I love about neon, why I think it's the sexiest medium probably is that the verb for making it is bending. I mean, mm. how sexy is that? I mean, throwing clay, like that's not that sexy. Painting, not sexy at all. Bending neon, like bending glass. I mean, that's bending glass. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, it's just sexy. Um, <laughs> it is. Yeah. And if you actually watch it happening, it's also, yeah, it's like fun to watch. It's very sexy to watch. Yeah. Too, they have the, the tube have in their like mouth. Blow and, into the yeah, tube. yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, explosive and it's mind boggling. And there's also so much like chemistry, like actual chemistry involved in terms of the gases and um, chemical reactions between um, different elements. So yeah, it's, it's super sexy. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, so you've worked um, a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of your, I guess, more very recognizable pieces are I'm in neon, but you've worked in a variety of media and scale from monumental inflatables to like cut flowers, like we said, um, mm -hmm. 2D uh, works as well. I'm, I'm wondering, is there any media that you want to explore more that or that you prefer that you haven't gotten into yet? I think I'll always love neon, you know, um, and I think that'll be something that stays pretty consistent because even though I haven't learned to bend the glass myself, I've pretty much learned everything else at this point. So in terms of like wiring and installation. So I feel the more I work with it, the more confident I am to really kind of play with the medium. And the reason I use it is really because of its ability to flash on and off, right? To change uh, messages and make words appear and disappear. So I think I'll always 
play with that and continue playing with that. But I think, uh, yeah, in terms of exploring uh, new mediums, one idea I have that I plan on beginning this year is actually working with carved stone. So one thing, so I make a lot of work about time, right? But I've realized lately after doing some reflecting that I work in a really kind of fast pace. So I have an idea and then I'm like, bam, I execute it really quickly. Um, and then I'm, I'm sure a lot of artists are really envious of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it definitely has its benefits in some ways, but in other ways, I'm like, if I'm making work about time and about all these different durations of time, I should also embed that into my practice. Right. And so I've been, wanting to do some projects that are like much longer term. Cause I've, I've been thinking a lot lately about long-term thinking, getting involved with organizations like the long now foundation. And so I wanted to, I've been thinking, I've been reading about projects that are like century long projects, like, you know, uh, building of churches or like civilizations, things that take like so long to, to evolve or to complete or to execute. And with rock carving, um, um, I've decided that I actually want to learn how to do it myself um, as opposed to hire it out. Because the, the really basic idea I have is that I want to make a huge pile of small rocks and each individual small rock that makes up this big pile will be engraved with the word then. So it'll be like a giant pile of thens basically. Um, <laughs> and the idea being that the word then can refer to both the past and the future. So it can be the moments before now or the moments after for now. Right. Um, but it's basically all the moments except for now. So I want to make a giant pile of thens. And I was originally like trying to write grants to hire um, someone to carve them for me and uh, was unsuccessful a few times in getting grants to do that. And so I'm like, you know what? I just need to learn how to do it myself. I only need to learn how to carve one word. Right. 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 <laughs> and then I can just collect rocks over lots and lots of years and kind of have a steady pile that grows over time. So that's something I plan on beginning this year. Um, I actually have a friend of a friend in Maine who um, is a letter cutter. And that's actually the term you cool. use for when you actually cut letters into rock as opposed to like carve it to make a sculpture, right? Because letter cutters have to know a lot about typography um, as well as knowing a lot about how to actually chisel the stone. So I'm going to go up to Maine this summer and learn how to cut the word then <laughs> into stone in a certain typeface that I haven't uh, decided upon yet. But and then I shall begin, I guess. Maybe you could do it in every typeface. You know, I think maybe you could start yeah. in Gothic and then go to Ariel and Helvetica and you know, that would be a passage <laughs> through the, the history and time of typography. Um, True. And maybe like in different that. languages. Have you worked in different languages? No. So, um, so some people have asked me that before and I always say emphatically no, because I mean, already it's hard enough for me to play uh, with words in a language that is my first language. I can't imagine trying to like play with nuance, you know, in a language that is not one that I actually know fluently, you know, and unfortunately I only, I'm only fluent in English, so I can't speak another language and therefore I don't think I'll ever try to play with one, you know? Well, I mean, it, it, regardless, it's, it's still difficult. Um, you know, that's, that's the art of translation. Um, 
and it, you you only know how to express yourself, you know, best in in, in your mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You spoke about the the Long Now Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about that and your involvement in that and how that's uh, informed your practice? Sure. Yeah. So the way that I discovered the Long Now Foundation is actually kind of funny. It's in graduate school around the same time that I made that between now and then sign. I was also playing around with other ways of making the word now um, because I started getting obsessed with that word. And so I was cutting lengths of yarn um, and I was soaking wool yarn in water and then I was writing the word now with the yarn and then putting it in the freezer so that it would like melt and so I was thinking very literally about the length of now and I think a habit that I used to have in grad school and a few years after that I feel like has kind of left me recently is that I always used to google my ideas (laughs) Um, to see. No it's good for intellectual property and I think we all yeah. do that yeah <laughs> yeah just to see like has anyone ever done something like this before or what has been written about the length of now you know and sometimes I think I still do google like certain terms just to see if it gets me to like an interesting article or book that I should know about right so I think I was googling the length of now and I came to the long now foundation and or like how long is now you know that kind of thing I bet you were like perfect wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly someone thought like, of this <laughs> Whoa, there's a whole foundation and it was started by Brian Eno and Stuart Brand, you know. Um, So Brian Eno, I've always liked his music and Stuart Brand um, is the person who started the whole Earth catalogs, you know. Yeah. And so really influential um, figures. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, these are my people, you know? So, (laughs) so I learned a little bit about them and how their goal is to foster long-term thinking in society. Um, because, uh, like Stuart Brand writes about how short-term thinking can be can have like really detrimental effects. Like for example, environmentally, if we don't think about like the future generations, obviously we're going to not take care of our resources or of our planet as well as we should be. So Stuart Brand wrote this book called The Clock of the Long Now, which was about one of their major, it's kind of their biggest project as an organization is that they're building a clock in inside of a mountain actually in Texas, or at, I don't know if you can call it a mountain cause it's Texas, but um, <laughs> inside of the ground. Uh, and this clock will be a mechanical clock that will keep track of uh, time in durations of up to 10,000 years. So, you know, not just a minute and an hour and 12 hours, but also like something that's ticking that keeps track of a 10,000 year increment. And their idea is that 10,000 years is how how much we should be thinking about both in the past and into the future, right? So that's where that 20,000 year now, I think that you mentioned comes from. So, so I like back in 2008, I think, or 2009, discovered this foundation, like became a member, started paying them $8 a month or whatever to mm-hmm. be a member. And then 
you know, sort of like kind of forgot about it. And then more recently, the way that I get ideas for some of my neon signs is that as I'm reading books about time or physics or philosophy, I like write down quotes that I find really inspiring in my notebooks. And then later I go through those notebooks, kind of looking for things that jump out to me with the potential for becoming a neon sign. And so one of those quotes that I turned into a sign in 2019 was a quote by Stuart Brand from that book, The Clock of the Long Now. And it says, this present moment used to be the unimaginable future. And um, I was working towards a solo show with my gallery in Portugal. And I decided to focus on that quote for a sign. And I tweeted at Stuart actually like, hey, um, can I make this into a neon sign? And I like showed him an image of what the sign would look like. And he tweeted back, sure. And with like a, with like a, I think an emoji that had the sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) And you like printed it out, sent it to your lawyer. You're like, great, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And actually I learned later that Stuart like makes all of his ideas like freely available. Like he wants everyone to just kind of use his ideas. And he um, like, I think obviously while also giving him credit, but it turns out, so I made that, that phrase into a neon sign that also flashes uh, some words off to say this moment used to be the future. And then it also turns off completely for a few seconds before kind of starting over again. And um, so I tweeted the finished product like at him and at the Long Now Foundation. And I think that got their attention. Um, And so we started communicating about it. And then that work got acquired by the Smithsonian for their upcoming 50th um, anniversary exhibition of the Renwick Gallery. When the work got acquired. Congratulations. That's huge. Oh, thank you. So yeah, when the work got acquired by the Renwick, the curator like reached out to Stuart and Long Now to get some quotes from them about about our collaboration. And I think um, that really sort of solidified our relationship and they invited me to be a fellow. So right now I'm uh, serving as a fellow, which is sort of like unclear what that actually means, but it kind of just means we're trying to collaborate more. I wrote down the uh, the the quote, Sir Brand. This present moment that lives on to become long ago. Mm. Yeah, and then and then you change it to this present moment used to be the unimaginable future. Yeah, I love how you added unimaginable, which which makes the the viewer think immediately about what they can imagine and what and it brings them directly to to thinking about the future and then when the words flash off, uh, mm-hmm. the past. Right. Right. Um. Yeah, what I learned when um, when the Smithsonian acquisition happened and uh, the curator asked Stuart some questions about, um, you know, the quote, where the, where the quote comes from, I learned that he wrote the quote based on, I think what you just read is actually a poem or a kind of a stanza from a poem by um, a man that Stuart is friends with. Gary Snyder wrote that. And then Stuart wrote um, The Unimaginable Future. And then I turned it into a neon sign. Um, So it's interesting how um, I think like part of my work as an artist is like, you know, always kind of drawing inspiration from the world around me or sometimes like quite literally quoting people. Um, And it's always fun for me to like realize that 
it's it's like everything's a remix, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, what I thought were like these original words by Stuart Brand was actually a remix of his poet friend's words. So um, so it's kind of cool how ideas can kind of be passed from one person to another in that way and like slowly kind of shift and change form, but kind of remain the same at their core. Yeah. And and I think that the, the actual medium of neon um, lends itself even more meta to talking about time. Um, and I found this quote that I think it was a quote that you said, uh, it's in reference to a sculpture that's a permanent uh, installation of yours in Philadelphia. And um, you said, or it was written, uh, light from the moon left its surface one and a half seconds ago. The sunlight travels for eight minutes and 19 seconds before it touches your skin. And the farther out into space we look, the farther back in time we can see. And I, I think that because at, at a certain point with neon, it will uh, the gas will expire, right? Like it won't at a certain point, it'll it'll go out. Right. Well, that's actually uh, it's a good question and it's unclear. So the medium of neon was invented in the early 1900s. I can't remember the exact year, but it's like 190 something. And uh, I read an article about how there was like a theater somewhere where there was a, a neon unit in, that was sort of like buried in a closet but that it was still on. And they think that neon had been on for like 80 plus years. And so there is still this question of like, how long does neon last? And this article posed or like posited that as long as the neon, as long as the glass is unbroken um, and there is no leak for the gas to escape, like it could potentially burn forever. Wow. That's really cool. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, I know, but it's so fragile. So I'm breaking the glass all the time. (laughs) Ever lasts forever. But um, I think it's kind of cool to know that it it might have that potential, but um, it's probably one of those things we will really never know. Yeah. That's cool. Well, and then to think about permanence as well, um, that that's also been, kind of a part of your work, uh, actually literally in that you have some permanent installations that one in Philadelphia. Um, and then you just, uh, completed a public art project with, uh, the Nasher here in Dallas. And I, I don't think that's not a permanent installation yet. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, a. Uh- it's meant to stay up for a year uh, right now. So, and actually the one in Philadelphia, uh, I've never actually set about trying to make a permanent work of art. So the one in Philly, it says all the light you see is from the past. And um, that one came about because I was invited by a friend of mine who's a curator to create a neon sign for this existing sign structure that was on the roof of this building in Philly that was slated for demolition. So the idea originally was that I would put neon up on this sign structure um, for maybe two or three months. And then after that, we would take the neon down because they were going to demolish the building. And we were even playing around with the idea of like, how could the neon still be flashing when the building <laughs> is being demolished and we can make a video and that'll be so cool. <laughs> 
Um, but then the developers who were going to tear the building down and um, build a new one decided instead to just renovate the existing building. And I guess when they made that decision, they were like, we want that neon to stay there. So uh, they purchased it for me and they, uh, I kind of like tweaked it a little bit so that it could be a more permanent installation. So yeah, it wasn't supposed to be, it was supposed to be temporary. And most of the things that I do are old always designed to be temporary. And then if people want them to become permanent, we can like tweak them to make them more lasting, you know? That's really interesting. And I saw on on Instagram uh, a couple of days or maybe last week that you posted uh, renderings of a public art project, uh, a currently unsuccessful public art project Mm -hmm. um, about the word now again another <laughs> the word that's constantly on your mind i'd love to know about what you think about public art i think it's really cool you probably take a lot of your the skill set you used when you were a designer and you're talking about that collaboration that collaborative process that's what mm-hmm. public art's all about and it's about the it, it's a marathon not a sprint right with public art Right, right. Yeah, it's actually, it's a funny, public art is a funny thing for me because on one hand, um, I do a lot of work in public spaces. Like I enjoy putting my work in public, but oftentimes I like to do it in really unconventional ways. And I actually think it has to do with the way that going back to my religious upbringing, I grew up in the kind of church that would do like tent revivals. Right. And so this idea of like bringing what happens inside the church out onto the lawn so people could see it and people could just pass by, it like makes it more accessible. Right. And people could wander by and be like, what's this, what are you doing? And we could strike up a conversation or something. Um, And I think it, like it ultimately goes back to like proselytizing, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think there's something about that in relationship to art and the art world that is kind of instilled in me from my religious upbringing. Like I think art can change the world in positive ways. And I think art can bring these really positive and hopeful life-changing experiences to people. But oftentimes it's hidden away in galleries or in museums that feel really inaccessible to a lot of people um, or unwelcoming in a lot of circumstances. So I think I really have this desire to bring my work out into the world and make it more accessible. And I think that's also why I use the like the kind of language that I use as well is about accessibility, about making sure the sort of like a normal person can at least at a very basic level understand what my work is saying, right? Whether or not they see all the nuance or the layers of meaning, they at least get that very like surface level read as long as they can read English, obviously. So uh, I've found uh, ways of bringing my work out into public spaces that are like unconventional, like with the neon sign on the roof in Philly, kind of using structures that already exist or putting signs on the backs of like uh, trucks and trailers and kind of driving them around. All these projects are meant to be like very temporary, right? Because I don't need to ask anyone for permission and I don't need to use materials that would be like 
permanent, quote unquote, mm-hmm. that would be like super expensive or prohibitive in different ways. Uh, because for me, like the temporary nature of the work is like what really interests me. Like the idea of having to think about creating something that could last forever. Right. Um, Cause I don't even believe in that. Right. right yeah. <laughs> it's really, uh, Nothing lasts forever. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe neon though. We don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in a vacuum, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, but what's funny is that because I have this experience and this interest in working in public, I have gotten naturally into public art. And so I teach this class at the University of North Texas that is called Art in Public. And I potentially called it Art in Public instead of like Art in Public Places or Public Art or because I, I want to think about like all the different ways art can exist or even be made in public. In that class, I really like challenge students to think about how you know, our traditional way of thinking about public art is thinking about things that are permanent, but how if we make public art that's temporary, I think it allows everyone involved to take way more risks, you know? So the artist gets to take more risks with the materials they use or the ideas they're expressing. And then the public uh, who accepts this public artwork and supports it by giving it a space or a platform gets to take more risks because they don't have to think that they're going to have to live with this thing forever. Right. right? So they might like do something that they're a little less comfortable with or a little, a little bit unsure of because it's only going to last for a short time. So yeah, I think it's a really fun thing for me to like think about and talk about um, for all those reasons. (laughs) I remember you telling me about that class too earlier and that part of the class is you actually helping all the students or some of the students secure executing these pieces in public in some way. Yeah. So the class, uh, I try to vary the assignments so that one of them, at least one of them is a very kind of traditional proposal based project where they're given a budget and a prompt or like a need from a certain community that they have to propose something for and kind of stick within that budget. And then one of the students will actually get selected for the opportunity. And then I help that student actually execute that project so that uh, we've done things, we've done sculptures for the Good Samaritan Society, which is like a retirement community in Denton. Um, we did two public sculptures for the city of Denison and then uh, uh, one sculpture for the Louisville Lake Environmental Learning Area. And next semester, um, some students are going to do some murals for Leela as well. Wow. So, so it's cool. fun. Yeah, it's fun for me to like, because I feel like public art is one of those catch 22 spaces, like the way a lot of the art world is, mm-hmm. is that in order to get the opportunity, you have had to have already had that opportunity mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. So it's fun for me to give students that opportunity while they're still in school. So they'll be more competitive for things like that after school. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Do you know of any other uh, teachers who are, who are teaching this class or a class similar to this around the country? I've heard about other schools that have public art programs kind of like this on their own campuses so they'll have students propose campus yeah yeah Yeah. propose projects for their own campus Mm -hmm. right Uh, which is already kind of like a safe space for those kinds of things i haven't really heard of other people doing what i'm doing which is like really getting students to work out in the community you know 
but I'm sure somebody is. Yeah, that's really cool. Public art is something I became really passionate about. Um, it's kind of the next chapter, I think, for me. I don't know how I'm going to get into it. But I guess, you know, we're talking about place and, and public art. Is there a dream location that you have in mind? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think uh, two things that come to mind are one, um, in 2016, I put a large kind of billboard scale sign that said forever on an, on a on a small Island off the coast of Maine. And it only stayed up for three weeks. Um, but the whole purpose of it was for it to appear and disappear in the fog, you know? Um, and I got documentation of that occurring. Um, and that ends up being sort of like what lives on, um, is that documentation, but I would love to, find a more kind of quote unquote permanent home for that sculpture. So like finding a place that has those kinds of like foggy weather conditions. So like somewhere in the Bay area in California or something uh, where I could put a really large sign that says forever. So that's one thing. And then another thing is um, I made a sign a while ago that says you are on an Island. And then the word on flashes on and off. So it also says you are an Island. And that has been fun to like install in different places around the world. And the second edition of that sign is actually on a rooftop in St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, And that's like a permanent installation, which I never knew that St. Petersburg was a series of islands, but apparently it is. Yeah. But so the third edition of that sign is still available and I'd love to see that end up someplace cool, you know? Um, but I'm in the process of doing a kind of a spinoff of that, which says you are on a mountain. And then, you know, it also says you are a mountain later this fall. I plan on, um, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. Back to Africa, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Finally. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I'll be doing a climb of Mount Kilimanjaro with a friend of mine, um, and a group of people who are affiliated with the Ted fellow organization. Uh And so we're all climbing, um, together and each of us is trying to do our own kind of research on the trip. And so my contribution is to bring this sign and we will erect it every time we get to a new base camp and I'll document that process. But I'm also excited to see kind of where that sign ends up in the world, you know? That's cool. Yeah. You're also the first person that I, that I know that I've met that has given a real Ted talk, like not one of those TEDx talks, <laughs> you know, like you were at the Ted and I think it was what, 2019 in Scotland. I mean, that was before, you know, the world fell apart, I guess. And and, that's, yeah. and, and I'm going to link that so that people can see it because it's really cool. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very embarrassed by that talk. It's Why? Funny. I don't know. I just, you know, Ted talks have like a really certain kind of tone mm-hmm. that, um, you know, most people who give TED Talks are coached. So uh-huh. you're sort of like coached, you write the talk and you're coached by coaches. And it's sort of like, it ends up in this way that that feels like I'm definitely proud of it, but I'm also a little bit cringy <laughs> <laughs> when I watch it. <laughs> but then at the end of it, you make the audience hold hands, which is kind of something that we unimaginable for the the present, uh, the current, yeah. you know, the immediate future. Um, and, and I think it's kind of that way of simulating, uh, 
a piece that you discussed and, and, and you've made, which I haven't seen. I'm really excited to see, which is called You Are Magic. And it's mm-hmm. inflatable. Maybe you could talk about how you got into inflatables. I got into inflatables through those really awesome, wacky, arm-waving inflatable tube bins. Yes. <laughs> or tube people. I guess Outside of the car washes. Yeah, that just... Yeah, just I've always loved dot those the American landscape, right? Yeah. Yep, exactly. I mean, inflatables are essentially a signage tool also, right? Yeah. So, um, so I, I think I got into them in that way because, you know, they're designed to like catch our attention and make us smile. And actually in graduate school, I made a wacky arm waving inflatable self portrait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that exists. It has my face on it. It's in storage somewhere. That's cool. Yeah. So actually the You Are Magic came about because I was invited by a curator to create um, a temporary public art installation for something called the Arlington Art Truck. And it's in Arlington, Virginia, not Texas. Um, So it's basically right in the Washington, D.C. area. The city of Arlington has a sprinter van that basically drives temporary public art projects to different locations around the city. And they sort of pop up for a few hours and then they pack back into the sprinter van and and drive and uh, drive away. So curator Cynthia Connolly, um, I think mine was her first Arlington art truck project. Like she had just gotten a grant to buy the van and she invited me to kind of come up with the idea for the first thing. So inflatables just seemed really natural to me. Like it, it just made sense because it could be really lightweight. Like you could carry it out of the van and then you could fill it with air. So it gets really big and then you could, you know, pack it back up and put it away really easily. So I knew that like an inflatable was something I wanted to do. Um, and then I also kind of thought back to, um, an electronics workshop that I had someone teach when I was teaching a class one time, um, where a friend of mine showed my students how your, uh, your skin can conduct electricity in like really low voltage quantities. So like two or three volts, um, if like one person touches the power and another person, person touches the ground and then you touch fingers, that current can pass through your skin and you can, your hands can be like a switch, right. To turn something on. So, um, so I kind of just put those two ideas together and decided to make this inflatable that says you are magic, but it only inflates when two people turn it on by holding hands. So there are these pedestals on kind of a stage that are too far apart for one person to touch both of them themselves, unless you're like really tall and you do yoga, which there was this one time where this girl definitely like stretched her body out and balanced in this way that she was able to, to do it. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, but for the most part, most people can't reach them and you have to have two or more people uh, kind of interact, create this connection in order for the inflatable to start to turn on and fill with air. Um, and then as soon as the two people like disconnect their hands, it turns off immediately and kind of like falls over back and deflates onto the ground. It looks magical. It is magical. <laughs> we are magic. That's how it, that's how it works. It's, it's a fun, it does feel quite magical actually, um, with how like immediate it is. Um, I'm 
I'm, I still sometimes like, like, wow, I can't believe this actually works. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's just like you touch your fingertips together. And it, like, so they're in the stage that you're standing on. There's um, electronics that have like a radio transmitter. So it radio transmits over to the inflatable to turn on because obviously it can't turn on something with 110 volts, mm-hmm. right? So it sends a radio signal, uh, but it's so immediate. Yeah. It's just like fingertips touch, it turns on and they disconnect, it turns off. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah, I've seen the video. It's so cool. And it's, um, <laughs> I don't know if the Color Factory in Houston is still open, but it's in one of the rooms, uh, an installation that you did. With James Akers. With James Akers. I know, I know. It, it's so cool. So it mixes neon and inflatables and it's electric. So it's like both of you together. It's so cool. Um, but I just want to ask you, I think just, uh, you know, the, these rise of these kind of pseudo permanent corporate, very corporate art installations have really exploded in the last I don't know, five to 10 years. You think of Meow Wolf opened in 2008. I looked that up. I couldn't believe it's been around that long. Then there's like the ice cream museum, the Van Gogh experience. We have the Sweet Tooth Hotel here in Texas. And um, I wanted to know what you think about that and their value. And then also how the color factory fits into that. Yeah. So um, I think that... I've been thinking about this um, in relationship to like the music world, for example, because uh, when it comes to listening to music, there are different ways we can listen to music, right? Like we can put headphones on and we can play an album and have this like really intimate experience um, or we can play it in our house and like enjoy it with other people or we can go to a concert where it's like a production, right? An mm-hmm. experience um, that is like really short lived, but really over the top. Right. And I think that for me, like there, there should be, and there can be, and why shouldn't there be equivalent ways of experiencing art? Right. So like the really kind of serious, intimate ways of maybe going to a gallery um, and having sort of like, or, or like a really quiet space in a museum where you have like a really intimate viewing versus like owning something and putting it in your house versus looking at it on Instagram or experiencing it in that kind of digital format versus, um, I think for me, the color factories or the meow wolves are like the concerts, right? The like mm-hmm. really yeah. over the top kind yeah, of yeah, productions yeah. of really like engaging and enthralling in the moment, um, but then like over when you leave. And I think I think all are valid and all are like all can be meaningful in different ways, you know. And I think in the art world, we can just be so snobby sometimes mm-hmm. because we can say like, oh, it's just for Instagram. Like mm-hmm. people don't really want to have that experience. They just want to be able to take the picture of themselves in the ball pit or whatever. And yeah, like part of that, I think really is true. And I think just as in any other thing, um, there's a spectrum of those kinds of interactive museums. So um, some of them really are like very much geared towards the photograph that you can take. Um, So it's almost like a diorama that you stand in and get your picture taken in and then you can post it on social media. Whereas other museums are 
like really, truly interactive in nature um, and also still very Instagrammable. But like you are like climbing around, mm-hmm. you know, through like a meow wolf, like through the refrigerator into a yeah. tunnel kind of thing. Right. It is actually like very experiential and really fun, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I really enjoyed working with Color Factory. Um, it's uh, before I did the installation for the one in Houston, they had me go to their museum in New York. So I got to experience that location before I I did the installation for Houston. And I had like so much fun. James and I went together. Yeah, it's it's really, really engaging and you get really great pictures. (laughs) Um, But they actually like embed cameras in the walls and in the ceilings and give you this like chip reader thing so that you just kind of scan a uh, scan your coin and then it'll take your picture and email it to you later. So you don't have to be taking them with your phone necessarily, but it's like, I don't know that there are some really cool installations uh, and some like really good artists like Christine Wong Yap uh, did, did an installation for the color factory in New York. And then she kind of replicated it for their location in Houston. That is um, she's a relational aesthetics artist. So like very social practice, really about like encouraging people to have interesting conversations with each other. And so there's a lot of like really beautiful moments to be had. Um, and I think Color Factory um, does a really great job with what they do. But then, you know, I think there are some other locations that I've heard are more sort of like, I don't know, more about the pictures and less about like the content. Right. Yeah. So. I love that that way of thinking about it, the metaphor between music and experiencing music. Um, I think that's yeah. that's genius. I haven't thought of it like that. And and I also love, I, I think it's really cool at the Color Factory, so you're not glued to your phone the whole time. Like you are in the rest of your life outside, when you're outside in the world, you know, seeing art, trying to document it. I am the absolute worst at taking photos for, you know, like social media or whatever when I'm there, because I really prefer to experience it in person. And then, you know, it all happens so fast. And then it's like, oh, wait, I have nothing to go back, especially for the podcast, for the social media. (laughs) Like, where's the content? You know, (laughs) it's kind of funny. And Um, the other thing I think those um, museums allow is like, because people have to pay an entrance fee to experience, you know, Meow Wolf or Color Factory, we as artists are given bigger budgets to do sort of more ambitious things. Um, So James and I like had quite a big budget to work with. And that was what allowed us to like basically surround you with neon on every surface of the room. So like all the walls and the ceiling. Right. And I think there are over like 350 individual blinking neon units. Like it's a lot of neon. (laughs) So it's very immersive and it's really fun to experience. And there's no way I could have afforded to do that, you know, without knowing that the color factory can invest because they're going to make a return on that investment. Right. Okay, so now we're going to move to the lightning round. These are really quick, uh, short questions, quick answers, something I haven't given you. Um, just kind of a surprise. Okay. Um, the first question is early bird or night owl? Early bird. That changed when I had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the second one, I think I know this one because I read about your installation called Coffee Cup Conveyor Belt Calendar, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. For sure. Mm-hmm. Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter? Instagram. Texting or talking? 
talking. What's the last book you read? You know what? It's so funny because um, I read a lot. And then like as soon as I'm done with the book, it's like gone out of my head. Um, or what are you reading now? That's also. Oh, I just reading? read a book called The Namesake. That okay. was the last. Book oh, I've heard there. about that. It's a it's a novel, right? It is a novel. I can't remember the name of the author at the moment. What's your first memory in a museum? Uh, My first memory in a museum. You know, I have no idea because I didn't go to a lot of museums as a kid. But the first thing I can think of right at this moment (laughs) is the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., that giant pile of clothing. Yeah, Um, it's such an amazing museum. Oh, my God. So crazy. So impactful. What do you collect? Um, what do I collect? I'm actually not a very sentimental person when it comes oh, yeah? to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I collect art by friends and former students. Um, yeah. And soon to be rocks too, right? You're going to be collecting. <laughs> yes, all of those. exactly. Yeah. Oh, and then for a little while, I collected. So I only collect things when they're like for a project, right? Okay. So um, in grad school, I did something where I collected my boyfriend at the time's belly button lint. Wow. Like crazy. I don't know why, but every single day he had this like big ball of lint that his belly button just made over the course of a day. <laughs> And uh, he was so embarrassed by it. And I was so like, like mystified (laughs) by it. So I started collecting them. (laughs) Did you do anything with it? I, um, I drew, uh, in pencil on the wall, I drew like the outline of a calendar and I started pinning (laughs) (laughs) the little lint balls in the center of each square. He did not like it. Wow. Did, was there more lint on the weekends than on the weekdays? Or no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's crazy. That's <laughs> that's really cool. Well, I'm glad you made something with it, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you could own any work of art, what would it be? I feel like it would I would want to own something maybe by like the people that I'm always compared to, you know like a Bruce Nauman or Jenny Holzer or someone who is sort of like my predecessor in terms of conceptual art and working with similar media, you know, if you weren't doing now, what would you be doing? If you weren't doing what you're doing now, I guess that's what I asked. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Never think you're the now. No. Yeah. See, that's the question. So so I guess let's change the question into like, what's your, cause this is something I wanted to ask. Um, you know, what's your concept of now? What's your concept of, of time? Uh, I mean, it's, uh, always changing. Right. So, um, I guess I'm very much someone who I think lives very much in the present. Um, And if any, if anything, I think, you know, like we all technically live in the present, but I think some people are sort of like have one foot in the past or one foot in the future. Right. Um, I think I definitely lean more towards future. I, I hardly ever think about the past. Like as soon as it's gone, it's over, it's gone. Like I'm very much, 
heading forward. And I think I, I like I'm not sentimental or nostalgic and I have a hard time remembering past events or even like people that were probably once really meaningful in my life. So reunions are hard. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, time means the amount of time that I get to be alive. So I try, I, I think often about like my mortality and how life is both short, but also long, you know, I think it's like, it's short enough where it's, there's always a sense of urgency to take advantage of the time that I have, but it's also long enough that I can be many different people if I wanted to, or have many different careers or change my mind about things. Um, And I don't necessarily have to feel like I'm trapped or that uh, I'm stuck in sort of like a rigid container. Has uh, being a mother or becoming a mother changed your concept of time or the way that you relate to time or seeing how people acquire and think about time? It's definitely a fun thing to observe uh, is like someone's growth and change over time, you know, and like one project in terms of things I collect, like one thing that I've been, that I've always collected is every time it's my son's birthday, like I take a video of him as we're singing happy birthday to him, which I think everybody does, Mm -hmm. but I have this goal of doing it like every year for as long as I'm alive so that I could compile all the videos together somehow eventually. So I have like a Dropbox folder where I'm saving all those videos. <laughs> eventually I'll do something with them. Does he know but, about this? Uh, no, I don't think yeah. so. He's only seven. So I don't know. Okay. Really all right. All right. Here. I think it's you cool. Know? Yeah. <laughs> <Mom>. yeah. <laughs> But I think uh, in more practical ways, just having a kid has made me so much more. I have to be so much better at managing my time, right? Because I have so much less of it to myself. So especially as a single mom for so long, um, like I really could only work when I had childcare. So I had to be much more efficient, (laughs) hence becoming um, an early bird. Right. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) I know you um, you're a teacher at university and to both undergrads and graduate students or just graduate students. Both. Yeah, both. Okay. Um, And so you're constantly giving advice to artists. But um, I'm wondering, you know, what you could what you could say now would be your advice. I would say it's a choice. Right. Um, It's like a choice that you have to make over and over and over again is to like be an artist and to keep being an artist by making art and by not stopping. And I think it doesn't have as much to do with like innate talents or abilities as it does with like just not giving up. So I think, and as far as I can tell, you know, from what I've seen in my life as the people who kind of get anywhere with their work are the people who haven't given up. Yeah. And I know that there are a lot of people who had advantages in one way or another, like money or connections or whatever. But I think ultimately the most important thing is like that determination. Now we're at my final question that I ask everyone. Um, there's no crystal ball, but if I gave you a magic wand, what's your wish for the art world? For it to stop being so obsessed with like permanence and archival paper and archival materials. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> um, ultimately it's related to like wanting to make sure you're, you're using archival everything is related to like capitalism, right? It mm-hmm. becomes this like uh, object that has value that won't lose value over time or yeah. something. But yeah, I think things get so much more interesting when you let them live for however long they're supposed to live. I love that. Well, it's even if you think of like, you know, 15th century paintings, you know, that are, that are warping, um, those weren't made with the idea that they would be on a wall in 500 years, 600 years, right. you know? And, um, and, and, and the cool thing about wood is that wood's alive, you know, it, it, it's constantly moving and changing and reacting to the humidity. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank this you. This has been so much fun. I've had so much fun too. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Archiverted. Please stay tuned for our next episode where we speak with Nina Blumberg, art advisor and founder of the popular Art World Instagram at Artstagram underscore underscore about the role of social media on the art world. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can DM us on Instagram at Archiverted Podcast. If you could please rate and review us wherever you listen, it only takes a second. It'll really help other introverted listeners like you find us. Remember, when it comes to art, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted, because you can always be introverted. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.